Welcome to the Vine Podcast. This is Warren, and today we're going to talk about the ways that our political and religious values influence ethical decision-making. There's a lot of potential ground for us to cover there, so we're going to jump right into some conversation today, and I'm going to welcome in the uh, two people that, I, that are joining me for this conversation today. One is a regular contributor to this podcast space. Jason is back with me today. Hello, Jason. Hey, Warren. Great to be here on this uh, wonderful day. Yeah, absolutely. And joining us for this conversation, making his return to the Vine podcast, actually, is one of Jason's colleagues at UMHB, Dr. Jude Austin. So good morning, Jude, and thank you for, for jumping back on with us and being with us again. Good morning. Thanks for the invite. I think I'm, I'm technically a friend of the pod, right? That's what they Friend of the pod. That's yeah. Yeah, That's what they say. Yeah, that's That's true. Except I think to keep that moniker, you have to like keep coming back with us at least every so often. So yeah, yeah. So we're down with that as well. I I really enjoyed getting to talk to you last time you were on with us, and and um, and looking forward to this conversation today. (laughs) And so before we jump into the really meaty stuff, I did want to ask you one question first because I noticed. So Jason. I'd mentioned this topic to Jason. He was going to reach out to you about it. And so he included me in that initial email that he sent you. And in that email, it started, Hey Jude. And like when I read that (laughs) greeting, I just immediately heard the song in my head. I didn't even think of that. I'm so sorry. I did not even um, think of that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering, Jude, how many references to to the song, Hey Jude, do you hear like in the course of your just day-to-day life? In my day to day, probably probably a good I don't know every every five to ten interactions, somebody will say, "Hey Jude, hey Jude, hey Jude," <laughs> which I'm completely <laughs> fine with. I'm absolutely <laughs> no problem with. <laughs> and are, are, do you have people that's like they're. Do you have people that think they're the first ones that, that that have thought of it, like they're being clever as they say it? I think it's probably like after they say it, then about 30 seconds later, they're like, you've heard this before. But yeah, <laughs> heard it before. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I just saw that when, when I read the email, I thought, yeah, that's. I would, I would think that'd be one of the things that would get old after a while, maybe, but um, you know what it doesn't, man. I used to, like, I used to play professional soccer and I would have fans cheering it. Like they would be singing the song if, cause I was a goalkeeper. Oh, that's cool. And so every hey, time cool, I yeah. hear it, I, I think of those moments. So I'm, I'm all, oh, yeah, that's cool. Often. Do you ever listen? Do you ever listen to the song uh, voluntarily? Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> Randomly. Yeah. <laughs> They'll Randomly. come on. And I never think. Yeah, they're talking about me. Yeah, that's my song. <laughs> it's just a good song, man. It's a good song. I got that's lucky cool. enough to have the name. So that's cool. I heard a pastor speak one time who had a grandson named Jude, and he talked about playing that song for his like, you know, toddler grandson on the guitar. And he's like, I think my toddler grandson thinks that I wrote it for him. Yeah. And like he's gonna grow up someday and um uh-huh. and learn that it's actually like, a song hey, the Beatles are playing my dad's song. The Beatles yeah. are right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's good. Uh well, anyways, I just wanted to start with that and and, and get your perspective on that. Uh now for, for other things. Um yeah. So you uh, in so part of your bio on your UMHB page, which I know I'm not telling you anything, obviously you don't know, but just to kind of tell some of our other listeners 
you had mentioned on your on your bio on that page that your research and scholarship chiefly focuses on identifying ways that counselor training programs can help students develop therapeutic presence with their clients. Yeah. And then you list several different directions that that has led you in, in this kind of area of focus. And one of those is exploring the political and religious values influence on ethical decision making. Yeah. And so that's what we want to kind of think about and talk about today. And I know you had said that most of your research there kind of focuses on 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 kind of that that topic as it relates to to counseling and to the counselor or client relationship, yeah. but that that kind of extends, that the research and study could extend out from there to kind of broader application. For sure. So that's where we're going to kind of focus most of our time there to this, this morning in our conversation. But I do want to maybe start with just this question of how did you become interested in this connection between, between values and, and ethical decision-making? And was this something that you had already kind of been interested in exploring, or did mm-hmm. you kind of come into this because of this broader uh, area of study of, of developing presence between counselors and clients? Uh, I think that the latter. So I did my dissertation uh, study on helping students develop therapeutic presence. And within those qualitative interviews, there was a, a participant who asked a question about um, what else plays a role in the way that counselor educators train students to be more therapeutically present. And the participant mentioned, you know, I think I think all facets of our life play some impact, you know, and one of the biggest areas was uh, politics and religion and how those things tend to be uh, topics we don't talk about in counselor training. We do in our program, but in other programs, sometimes it tends to be not a focus of their program. And so we were on the heels of uh, when President Trump was elected. I was working at Old Dominion University of Virginia. And that city, Norfolk, was sort of split. And I was teaching a class that night during the election. And you can tell that the room was split 50-50. And there was people in tears and people cheering within the same class, you know? Mm. And so we had to stop class and have a kind of broader discussion about what does this mean for us as counselors and training and what does this mean for the community that we're working in um, and it was I was teaching an ethics class and so that topic just started to kind of you know simmer and marinate and uh, I just put a colleague in one of my good friends um, Christine Berger and uh, we just started talking and it evolved from there um, and so that's how we got interested. And I think after we did the first interviews with participants, like I did an interview, she did an interview and we sat in an office and just kind of discussed it. We were like, whoa, like this is, yeah, this is probably something we should be studying and also something we're a little terrified of studying as well, you know? So that's the gen, that's the makeup of it. That's the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Because it would seem maybe just from an outsider's perspective, like, yeah, how could, how could a counselor not bring their own kind of religious political thoughts, values into that conversation and, and to have to, because I'm, I'm guessing you want to try as much as you can to be unbiased in, in those sessions. Uh-huh. I don't know if unbiased is the best word, but it's the best word I can come up with right now. Sure. And, and so you, you almost have to, you have to be very aware, I guess, of your own, 
what's driving your own thoughts and, and perspective, I guess, in some sense. Well, the fact of the matter is you can't not bring yourself to the counseling room. You're a human Absolutely. being and you don't cease to be a human being when you become a counselor. Absolutely. And while sure. your personal, you know, you're not there to advocate for your own personal beliefs and agenda. Uh, it's right. naive to think that that's not going to influence how you think and interact with your clients. And so as counselor educators, what we're trying to help students do is become aware of that mm -hmm. and kind of know how yeah. to balance that line between being true to yourself and meeting the clients where they are. That's where the challenge comes in. And most of it has to do with remembering what is your role in this moment? Mm -hmm. Your role is not to be a political advocate for one direction or another. Your, your role is to help with the distress and the, uh, the struggle that the client may be experiencing. Um, and, you know, frankly, that might have to do with their, you know, socio-political positions. You know, it's not to say that that doesn't influence our distress. Um, but if that's, going to change, then our job is to guide clients to, to that conclusion on their own, mm -hmm. rather than saying, hey, you know, the problem is that you hold this belief, and uh, that's creating a lot of conflict for you. If you would just change, then <laughs> yeah, you would you, be fine. Right, right. <laughs> I think, like, you know, going into a session, and this is some of the stuff we found in the research, was if you went into a session acting as if all of you is going to impact that client, your beliefs, your values, your religious beliefs, political beliefs, leanings, whatever that is. If you act as if it's going to, you can, you can tend to have a more secure therapeutic relationship because you're aware of what's going on in there. It's when you, right. it's when you act as if you're objective that those mm -hmm. things tend to insidiously slip in and it's not the big, like, you shouldn't vote for such and such. It's the insidious little tiny micro reactions to something. When someone says, you know, I'm on, you know, welfare. And it's the facial expressions of a, of a counselor that mm. tells their political leanings or thoughts on that, that will impact the client and trigger their feelings of, you know, not being safe which would then make them not be vulnerable, which would then dissolve the whole therapeutic relationship. It's like little micro skills that these beliefs are impacting, you know, so small to where you would probably walk out of a session thinking that was great, you know, and the client will walk out of the session thinking, why do I feel so impacted by this? I felt weird, you know? So it's those things that I think the, the research kind of, picked up on as we did the interviews. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of that, that research then. So that's kind of the genesis of it. And, sure. and, and so you kind of recognize that there's something here that needs to be explored. Yes. What are the, what, what did that study look like? What do those interviews look like as you go about trying to, to, to nail some of this down in ways that you can kind of share and learn from and, and develop some stuff from? For sure. Yeah, we thought we were going to have about, you know, five to 10 interviews 
you know, because it was qualitative. So it was qualitative and it was a basic phenomenological research study. But we just wanted to figure out people's lived experiences and how they navigate uh, ethical decision making as they see clients and how their politics and religious views impact that. So it was a basic qualitative study. Um, we put out a, a, a email kind of, you know, inviting people to come in and we had like 30 something interviews. I mean, it, this is qualitative, you know, which, you know, I'm sure people who aren't a nerd right now are thinking what's qualitative, um, but I'm a nerd. And so qualitative is basically uh, you, you're capturing thick, rich descriptions of people's lived experiences. And so usually there's a small population of people you're interviewing because you're not looking for generalizability. And so we just want it. We just wanted people's lived experience. And it was a hot topic. I mean, we probably did it within a month after the election. Um, and, and it kind of on went a year to year and a half after the election, you know? And so um, it was just hot. So we split up the participants into a couple of different categories, depending on their religious and political beliefs. Um, we asked them the same questions. It was semi-structured. So we had, I think about 10 to 15 questions that were standard. And then we kind of flexed in and out. Um, and we did constant comparative analysis, which basically meant that after each interview, we analyzed it, uh, analyzed the data. Um, and the results, I think to us were shocking, um, you know, in the sense that we didn't find what we expected to find, even though we went in there inductively, we, we, we had some expectations, but we were a little bit shocked on uh, mainly the fear and how, how much fear drove people's political and religious beliefs, the dogmatism of their beliefs and how, and there's mm. no ca causation, but the correlation definitely, and we heard it in people's voices, was as fear went up, almost like a, like a blindedness went up as well. You know, so it's like as they were fear, as they were afraid, dogmatism went up and then they were also a little bit blind. So you heard people say things like oh, Christians are so judgmental. And then they'd follow that up with judgments about Christians. And then we <laughs> interviewed Christians and Christians were and not all of them. Right. But majority of them were humble and kind of I understand why people would fear, you know, uh, us now in counseling, you know, and why, you know, some of, mm. some of the beliefs, especially because the more outspoken individuals in the field tend to be, um, you know, people you don't want outspoken for your community, you know. Um, and so there was some give and take. It wasn't like one group was bad and the other one was good. It was just interesting seeing the different dynamics play out so yeah that that's the basic overview of the structure of the study and some of the findings but there was a lot of findings in there man yes yeah, so, so you mentioned that as fear went up you said kind of blindness went up yeah, uh, yeah. right and that was you said so do and that's so how I want to just clarify one thing there do, when you say that do you mean kind of blindness to other perspectives or or kind of maybe a, a lack of understanding of other perspectives or will to kind of explore other perspectives or I think, kind of I what think you mean by that? I think a little bit of that, yes, but I think overall it was a blindness on how they affected other people. 
right? Oh, okay. E- even do even doing the interview, you know, because uh, we nobody knew our religious beliefs or our political, you know, standings at all. And so some of the stuff they would say to you during an interview, you know, me and uh, my co-researcher, we'd come back like, oh my, like I was triggered, but you know, you don't, you don't say anything. You just kind of try your best to listen and gather data. Right. As people would say things and you're just like, man, I'm a Christian. I don't believe that at all. You know? Yeah. And they just, you know, would say stuff. And so, and you'd want to defend yourself, you know, you know, wait a minute, you know? right. but you, you can't, you know, cause you got to collect the data. And so it, it felt like, not a blindedness in, in their views or not that they weren't researched or well versed in their views, but it was how it, it impacted other people, you know, mm. like, and how it seems like they don't necessarily, a lot of individuals there, especially when the fear went up, there was maybe a lack of um, outward or other um, a, a awareness you know, and so that, that reminds me that, you know, whenever you engage with ideas or beliefs that you may disagree with, there has to be a certain amount of respect yeah. that you have for that, at least for the person who's holding that those beliefs and opinions, yeah. you don't have to agree with it. And, and I don't think respecting those people, um, you know, amounts to an endorsement of their beliefs or opinions, Man. but like if I'm going to engage with someone about, you know, a belief that I find to be very toxic or that mm-hmm. I find to be very problematic and even damaging to, to others, I can't just go in and start spewing information about how awful they are. I can't yeah. just start name calling and, you know, talking about the evils because I mean, what am I doing at that point? Am I actually trying to, uh, to, to have a positive influence? Am I actually trying to have a conversation with somebody or am I just wanting to, uh, am I just wanting to, you know, create conflict in that moment? Um, that That's why yeah, I actually was reading a book last night um, about a completely different topic and it had an entire, entirely different chapter where it was discussing how to engage with with people who believe radically different from you on that topic. Yeah. And it basically amounted to treat them with respect, mm-hmm. uh, treat them, you know, un- understand that they, you know, have come to their conclusions for reasons that are meaningful to them. And you're not going to change any hearts or minds if you neglect those facts. Absolutely. And, you know, to, to add on to that, you know, the, the opposite was when people were less, def- less afraid, right, and, mm-hmm. and more trusting in something, mm-hmm. right, especially mm-hmm. if they trusted in God, the fear went mm-hmm. down and the cultural humility went up, mm-hmm. right? So you, we experienced or we heard people, you know, say things, I mean, my way isn't the way. I understand why people would believe this, you know, and I think that separated, right, the individuals, our experience of them sharing that they tended to be a little bit less um, like uh, angry or afraid or at least emotionally reactive, 
you know, and they were more willing to, 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 I don't know, to share both sides of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and they were able to talk a little bit clearer about um, how their viewpoints impacted their decision-making, you know, as opposed to kind of uh, maybe ranting or sharing and getting tangential, you know, like they were able to kind of focus in a little bit more. I think like that cultural humility piece that Jason was talking about, where you just say, well, maybe my way isn't the right way. It changes everything. It changes your whole orientation towards another person. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I remember that that phrase, cultural humility, is something that I've actually carried with me uh, that you brought up, I think, in the last conversation we had with you uh, a while back that that I think you kind of ended with that that has been a a good a good uh, phrase for me to keep in mind. It's been helpful for me. And and I do think, you know, hopefully people can can see the obvious what I think are obvious connections here between the research that you've done, as you said, that has uh, at least kind of focused on the counseling arena yeah. first, yeah. but, but man, these are things that we all struggle with of, of being aware of maybe how, how our own thoughts, values come across to others, what we may be projecting, um, and, as we kind of just interact with other people, mm-hmm. all of those things. Cause one of the things that I thought of as you were talking about what, what counselors may bring to conversations is, is the ways in which we do that, that if, you know, for instance, if I have kind of come to a conclusion of the the loving the loving way to act, and you know, in a particular situation is is this, mm-hmm. as I share that conclusion that I've come to, it can come across to someone who doesn't share that as I'm saying they are unloving. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm saying mm-hmm. they are somehow less than or judgmental or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something we struggle with as as both religious and political kind of thinkers and and people mm-hmm. of how do I how do I hold my position with, with conviction while also having some humility to, towards someone who arrives at something else? Absolutely. And, and who, who arrives to the conversation in a different place. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in a very yeah. different place. I feel like, you know, that relates to new believers and no believers and, you know, trying to have a conversation about, you know, God or trying to have a conversation about, religion or spirituality it's you kind of have to meet people where they are you know and I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that we found you know helped students be more therapeutically present to you know not to go back to the research but to talk about that is that everybody comes with a different level of presence a different way that they impact those around them you know, and the, one of the another big kind of find from the study was that, man, the more people are aware of that, the easier it is to pull other people in mm. towards them, you know, to to have these discussions about sure. politics and religion, you know. Yeah. And, you know, in our context here in this podcast, at least we are, a, you know, obviously a church affiliated podcast or a Christian, yeah. you know, based podcast. And so I do think that connects with with Christian community because we may not use this language, but I think part of what we want to forge in Christian community is, is presence, right? Presence with each other, relational presence with each other. And, and so we have to recognize, or it would at least, it it would help us to recognize these same things as we try to be present with, with each other in, in Christian community. And, 
I want to come back to, to a little bit of the, what, what you said about the research too, before I want to I want maybe uh, go to a little bit of a different kind of angle with it. But sure. so you talked about kind of being surprised by, by what you saw in the fear. And, and before that, you said that you, what you found wasn't what you were expecting to find. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about that. What, what were you expecting to find then? Um, <clears throat> okay. So we were interviewing counselors, right? Mm-hmm. I expected to find uh, mature, self-aware, self-actualized <laughs> even, <laughs> you know, individuals who have went through three years of a grueling counseling program that stripped you away and built you back up. And the way you articulate, I was expecting to find, I don't know, man, just like, just awareness, like insight, this like deep, you know, but And some, most of the interviews were like that, but there were some, you know, from individuals in the community that's really outspoken that you walk away feeling like, man, are we as a field in a good state? Are we to, to prepare students to be able to navigate these thoughts and beliefs? Because mm. it, the, the world is getting more political people. That's one thing, you know, about, you know, uh, um, President Trump's election and then beyond. More people are involved. More people want to use their voice, which is great, you know. But, you know, do we as a, as a profession, are we capable of na- uh, training and navigating and, and having those discussions in class, you know, because some of some of the participants were council educators, you know, and I'm walking away from those interviews like, man, I don't think you're ready to, to have a conversation without getting, you know, emotionally reactive, you know, because um, I tell you, man, in that first class in Virginia, when the election night and I didn't know what to do, I'm, in, I'm teaching about ethics, the classes, I mean, people are crying, terrified, right. you know. You know, because uh, we had people from all over the world in that class and having to navigate those waters, you know, I'm like, gosh, I really need to start watching the news. Oh, my gosh. Like, I felt so uninformed. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I expected, you know, and uh, and I and, and I realized quickly that counselors are humans, too. You know, no matter how much training we go through, we still get affected by things. You know, we're not perfect. Yeah. So, yeah. So are there are there tools that, that you have developed or come across kind of on the heels of this research that you think has has helped counselors to be able to do some of this work that might be needed to, to kind of come to more of this kind of mature, self-actualized place? Yeah. One of the things we found in the research was was dialogue, dialogue mm-hmm. with diverse individuals, because I think what tends to happen is people, you, uh, they create these echo chambers, you know, uh, yeah. where everybody's kind of saying the same thing and everybody feels comfortable, you know, um, right. but having the relational courage to be uncomfortable and have conversations with people who may disagree with you and being culturally humble doing that dialogue allows people to be impacted by other people's life experiences. And, and going mm. into the conversations thinking, this person isn't trying to change me. I'm trying to understand them, 
that those are two different orientations in a, in a discussion, you know, um, and being able to go into those discussions with that allows you to just listen, you know. And well, that's the that's the main difference between yeah. a dialogue and and two simultaneous lectures. Yes. You know, if you watch yes. cable news, <laughs> yes. they're not engaging yes. in dialogue typically. They're engaging in parallel lecturing. Yes. The difference being one incorporates listening and the other does not. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to engage in a back and forth repartee with someone and think that you're engaged in dialogue when you're really not. Because you're just speaking your your points, and maybe you're doing it cordially, but you're speaking your points and you're formulating your points, but you're not open to really hearing and trying to understand what the other person's saying. You're not looking for the humanity or you know where can I see where they're coming from here. Um, you're looking what you're looking for. If you're listening for anything, you're listening for something that you can counter. Or you're listening for and when you're when you're not engaged in dialogue, I should say, with that parallel lecturing, you're listening for, you know, what points can I trip them up on, or what points can I, you know, provide evidence to the contrary? How can I provide a counterpoint to what they're saying? Mm-hmm. That's not dialogue. That's parallel lecturing. Yeah. One of the uh, one of the reasons that this topic was of interest to me is because I had. I've sort of been thinking about, and it's something we've talked about some within our church is just how we arrive at the views that we hold. And, and we, we might have thoughts about how we do that. And especially as Christians, right? Like we might have thoughts of, well, I've arrived at the views that I hold because this is what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that can blind us to maybe other influences just Mm -hmm. from our parents, the ways that we grew up, the the region of the the country we grew up in, the way that we read the Bible, um, all kinds of other influences that would feed into that, that we kind of then, I think, tend to filter through a a theological lens. Sure. And, and I think maybe, maybe we hold those a little more deeply because when we say, this is, this is what God is, is wanting of me. And so I've, I've got to hold to it. And so I, I think as it relates to politics, I, I think maybe that many of us as Christians believe that we hold the, the political, the political views we do because of what we believe about God, because of how we read the Bible on and on, we could go. And, but but again, there may be other factors that are informing our political views that that may be driving some of that more than we would originally care to admit or recognize. Mm-hmm. And and so I'm, that was kind of one thing I've been wondering about. One is just, is there work that we can do to kind of figure some of that out? And I think dialogue would be maybe some of that. Maybe that would be one thing. But like, is there introspective work that we could do to to help us reflect on what really informs our values, our beliefs, um, and, and how we came to those things. Absolutely. Um, you know, going back to the study, one of the things that we found was this almost like slingshot um, effect that people have with their beliefs. So it's almost like, and this has a lot to do with attachment to people would kind of believe what their parents believed. Then they'd get out of the mm-hmm. house. They'd find their own way. And then fear would step in and they'd slingshot back, you know, to those Mm. old kind of familiar homeostatic patterns, you know. Mm. Um, And when we asked them why, why do you believe what you believe? There was, I mean, I would say probably a good 90, 80 to 90% of interviews 
that answer started with a pause. When, why, why do you believe what you believe? There was like a, well, I don't, I don't really know. Let me, <laughs> let me see, you know? And so I think that's where you start. I think you start ask with the question, why do I believe what I believe? I mean, really, why do I believe what I believe? And talk through it, but then also ask, you know, origin stories of people, you know, like your parents, grandparents, tell me a little bit about your belief, because those things are filtered throughout our experiences. So that, and then read, read books from both sides, you know, um, watch news from both sides, right? Get a full holistic viewpoint of this stuff. You know, um, the more you can get yourself out of an echo chamber, I feel like the more open you are to insight, you know. Um, and so that's one of the biggest ways. And it's helped me, you know, doing this, doing the research when we did it. Uh, I went back and asked my parents, like, why are you, why was grandpa that, you know, and mm-hmm. he having those discussions, I don't know, put my life and my beliefs into perspective you know, and I felt like it gave me more control over them. Like the more awareness I had, the more malleable my beliefs were. They didn't change. They weren't less convicted, but they were, they were able to be shaped, I think, a little bit with intentionality, um, which I think changed it because a lot of, a lot of individuals feel stuck in the, well, I'm Republican or I'm Democrat because I've always been, you know, and it will, it, examine that a little bit, you know, um, you can grow, you know, growth and change are two different things. You can't conflate them, you know, but give yourself the option to grow. Yeah. I, I think that's probably, yeah. One of the things that that's stands good. out most. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned that this, this slingshot effect of kind of going yeah. away, doing some stuff, whatever, exploring, and, and then coming back to, to the views that, that, that we grew up with in a lot of cases. Do, do you find that, is there a correlation between kind of a person's attachment to their parents mm-hmm. and, and, and that slingshot effect? Like, in other words, I would seem to expect that someone would slingshot back to what they grew up with, the more healthily attached and connected they are to their parents. Is that true? Or does it, does it not matter? Uh, I, I want to get Jason's opinions on this. Um, I'll, I'll say from my experience, it doesn't matter. Like It's just kind of what I grew up with is going to impact me regardless of whether I've got a healthy or unhealthy relationship with that well, family. For, for sure, because, you know, most individuals, right, especially if they don't have a lot of awareness or insight, which is not a bad thing. We all grow up with some level of blind spots, right? The body doesn't care about health or right 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 it right. just cares about homeostasis you know we'll, that's why people so this is this it. is what i know regardless of whether or not it's well this, it's this actually is, traumatic or healthy <laughs> for sure this is what feels comfortable you know it, which yeah. is you know why people you know will will even if even if a person that they're attached to a partner is different right when fear comes in or anxiety comes in they will work to change that relationship back to something that is mm. comfortable, whether or not it's healthy mm. or unhealthy. You know, what do mm. you think, Jason? Yeah. Uh, my, when Warren was asking that question, 
my first thought was, I don't think it matters. Now, granted, I've never done research into this. I've never looked at, you know, the slingshot effect and, you know, how a person's beliefs as an adult, you know, how, how that may be correlated to the attachment with their family. I will say from a family systems perspective, mm-hmm. now, now we're going to nerd out a little bit. For okay? sure. Um, from a family systems perspective, um, attachments are not always healthy. You can have unhealthy attachments and healthy attachments. And in healthy attachments, I think that that creates an environment where kids, as they grow up and become adults, have more freedom to explore their own beliefs and freedom to engage in okay, why do I believe what I believe? Why, you know, what, what actually do I think about this topic? And maybe that comes out a little bit different than, in fact, it'll probably come out at least a little bit different from the previous generation. Um, And it might be, you know, more conservative. It might be more liberal. It might be more one direction, more another. It might be more religious. It might be more secular. I think the the assumption is that younger people are more liberal and secular and older people are more religious and conservative. And that might be like the broad population trends, but within any given family, it, it doesn't go always go that way. And so when you think about like that slingshot effect, it is kind of going back to what I know, but from a healthy perspective, what I know is kind of based in um, in some truths that I have reckoned with and in some aspects of my life, you know, not, not judging the veracity or the legitimacy of it, but that there are some things in my life that actually do have some value, even if it might be somewhat complicated. Um, whereas, you know, I mentioned the healthy attachments, the unhealthy attachments, that's where you see people like digging in their heels and really not examining why they believe what they believe. They're just going to hold on to a particular belief for dear life, which might be the same as their parents or another unhealthy attachment is being a reaction to their parents. I didn't have a good relationship with my parents or I didn't like the way that they did things or I, and so I, you know, I'm not at all going to hold the beliefs that they hold and it's not really any better to take that position simply as a reaction to my experience with my parents. It's, it's just a different way of react of responding to a strained, maybe unhealthy attachment. So, so I've encountered a number of people who say, Oh yeah, I broke away from that. You know, you know, I, the toxic uh, household that I grew up in and I don't believe anything like that. Well, okay. Maybe you don't, but there's still a lot of unhealthy attachment processes going on here and maybe some very unhealthy, like unexamined beliefs that uh, probably could use a little bit more introspection. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's almost like the more you say, I'm, I will never. Yeah. The higher the likelihood that you will. Yeah. Because the more you push it away, the less you're aware of how it's kind of finding its way in to your interactions and your belief system. Mm -hmm. I feel like Mm -hmm. it's better to ask, how might I become, you know, Mm -hmm. like instead of how do I avoid? 
because mm-hmm. you know? the more you kind mm-hmm. of are aware of how these things are, you know, happening, the more control you have over it. It sounds like it connects back to the points that you were making earlier, Jude, about trust and fear. Like if Absolutely. fear is the driving force, Absolutely. then that that's going to lead me to a certain, Absolutely. not only set of decisions, but with a certain kind of framework and, and perspective in mind. Absolutely. And if we're going to get like really biblical, like if we, if we think about attachment to parents and how that impacts our political and religious views, I think it's probably just as important to examine our attachment to God, you know, and how Mm. that, how that, that secure or insecure attachment impacts our trust and our fear and how our trust and our fear impacts our religious and political beliefs and the decisions Mm. and the behaviors you make because of those decisions, you know, it all stems back to that attachment to God. But man, that's, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, because I think in a, sometimes in, in church lingo, we want to use kind of churchy words like grace True. and law or legalism yes. yeah. that, that maybe sometimes are just kind of covers for secure or insecure attachment to God and yeah. how that impacts how I live out my faith, what decisions I make, what yeah. I do. That's interesting. And, and there's yeah. no, you know, I say this, man, like attachment is is. It's, in, it's not good or bad. It's just a thing. Attachment right. can change as you grow and learn and, and dive more and have more dialogue. And then as you pull out of community because of some reason, that attachment may change. You can go back and forth. I think it's important to, to that people hear that like these things aren't rigid ways of being that, well, I'm insecurely attached. That's my life. Like, no, you can work and change and grow and have experiences and hear different discussions and listen to podcasts and th- that will reorient you and change your attachment, you know? So it's not all lost if you feel insecurely right. attached to your mom, you know, like it's, o- it's okay. Right. <laughs> you can grow with that. Well, and that's, you know, we've talked to in, in various conversations here at our church about just kind of that echo chamber effect and how we tend yeah. to to exist in those things in our current culture. And, and I think it's sort of ironic that you're, you're right. Like we have so much access to information now yeah. through books, podcasts, um, videos, whatever, mm-hmm. that it's, it's sort of ironic that we've got maybe more access to various perspectives than we've ever had. And yet the echo chamber effect is maybe stronger as well stronger. because of social media and the people we tend to have conversations with and and how that we influences how we go into curate. those conversations yeah we yeah. can more tightly curate our sure. our environment and so whereas before you know we used we might live in a community that was relatively homogeneous but uh you know, there would be some diversity in there. Well, we can now filter out as much diversity as we want from our, not just our social media feeds, but even down to like, you know, if a particular church, if, if we want a different nuance, we can find a different church to attend that, that contains that nuance or, you know, even our work environment, you know, there are lots of different areas in which we can really carefully curate uh, who we're interacting with and what kind of messages we get. And if we don't like what we hear or what we see, then we're, you know, very eager and, and able to move on. Yep. 
Right. Dude, it made me think about too, when you were talking earlier about the interviews that you did in your research, how you were kind of surprised at things that people would say, and y'all were being very intentional about not sharing your political, religious views, whatever, because you're just the researchers. It made me think that it would have been interesting in some of those conversations. Like what if you had a room just like yeah. full of Trump campaign memorabilia yeah. or yeah. a room just full of Obama <laughs> or Hillary posters, right? And and what would how would people's words and how would that impact what people would share and how they would share it? I mean, it would obviously have an impact, yeah, <laughs> but, but just your, your attempts to not share any of that, how that led to maybe different, different comments that would have come out that, that might not have been shared otherwise. Absolutely. You know? I mean, people like, you know, you'd ask the interview and people would Google you and they'd probably see yeah. a picture, like a faculty picture and they just assume they would just make assumptions that like, Oh yeah, you're probably democratic. You're probably this, you you know? And it's like, they come to that and you can hear it in interviews where people are talking and they'll say things like, I mean, you know, almost as if like you're, <laughs> you're on their side you know right and it's just you being a good listener but you just kind of go with it you know like yeah uh -huh. sure i don't know tell me a little bit about what you think you know <laughs> you know just to get you get more data that way you know but sure, it, yeah it's yeah for sure that stuff plays a, a huge part people's perspective. when that that's a good dissertation topic for somebody who's listening <laughs> yeah well, and so in, in some of the emails that we were trading kind of leading up to this conversation you had mentioned in one of those that the protest a couple of summers ago uh, led to some white Christian clients intentionally seeking you out as a therapist to discuss the intersection between their their political religious and social viewpoints and so I'm curious to get your thoughts on that but kind of to connect that to what we were just talking about do you feel like you have clients that make assumptions about you because of your, your your race, your appearance, whatever it is, like, are there assumptions that you feel like people are making about you that they're coming into kind of the opposite of maybe what we we're talking about earlier, just that there are, there are things that people are kind of assuming about you based on your appearance, what they see, all that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think going into a, especially a new client, right. Just almost expecting that mm. there are some assumptions that they're making about me, you know? Um, and I mean, I give clients the opportunity to ask me questions, whatever they need to know about me to feel comfortable. If I'm comfortable sharing, I will, you know? Um, but, but yeah, I just expect it, you know? Um, and do my best in the therapeutic relationship to navigate those expectations, you know? Um, because I want them to have a genuine relationship with me, you know, at the end of right. therapy, more than growth and change, I want my clients to feel like they know me, you know, um, and I want them to feel like I know them. And so to do that, we got to, uh, you know, dissolve those expectations so you can have a more realistic, you know, uh, perspective on people, which is parallel because that's kind of what you're trying to get people to do outside in their real lives, you know, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's almost a given, you know, some reaction. So, um, and, you know, they may, you know, show it differently in the way they sit or the way they walk in or how they shake my hand, you know, different clients shake my hand differently, you know, um, I don't know why they try to dap me up, but some clients do. And I'm like, <laughs> we don't have to do this. You know, we don't have to do <laughs> like, it's not like a, it's not like a cultural sign of, you know, 
<laughs> anyway, so it's not yeah, it's, it's just, not cultural humility to try to dap you up. That's yeah, it's, what you're not, saying. it's not a social <laughs> justice. It's not a victory for social justice, man. If you, can, <laughs> it's just not. So, yeah, I just I do my best to just kind of you know maneuver around people's expectations and try you know my best to get them to see me you know uh you know my culture and all you know so mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's great <laughs> yeah i've had some great stories um, going for a handshake and people i'm like whoa all right, <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> we're doing it we're awesome. doing it all right <laughs> that's great it made me think i don't know if this is an apt comparison but it made me think of the key and the key and peel sketch yes yeah with obama that's exactly it yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's exactly it you know and some clients you want to do that with but others you're like you don't have to you don't have to do it but to get back to the to the uh, point or the question right or maybe what i heard was the question but yeah i think um i think uh i think people you know maybe especially white christians doing those protests um i think they were i think they were really just looking to to understand you know mm-hmm. um and it was an interesting position to be in because i don't i don't want to be in the position of teaching people about these things you know mm-hmm. um but there was these interesting dialogues where i think a lot of people and sometimes they would come in for just one or two sessions you know um just Mm -hmm. to just to hear a different perspective and have maybe a deeper conversation with somebody that they didn't have to worry about offending even though they may offend me you know um they don't Mm. have to worry about offending me which i think drops people's guards a little bit to be themselves you know um so it was yeah it was an interesting summer that summer yeah because i was not expecting so I, know, I didn't think that was going to happen yeah yeah you, you mentioned you didn't want the responsibility of, of teaching some of these things mm. is that is is that a burden that you feel like you you carry as as an african-american man is it it's yeah it, do you feel like it's an expectation placed on you by others that that then becomes burdensome i think it's it's an expectation um especially in the role that I, I feel like I, I'm in sometimes in therapy. In my everyday life, I'm a little bit, I can easily just kind of avoid the training, you know, uh, or the talking, you know, and I mostly do. But in therapy, it's a little bit different, you know, when somebody comes in and, and they're very like genuinely asking for help. I mean, like I, I chose you because I, I have anger. I don't know what's, I'm confused. I'm lost. I want to come to someone who may understand this and who would be able to walk me through this kind of cultural awakening, you know? Mm. And, and that's the way I frame it in my mind, which makes it less of a burden when I'm in session is that everybody has that cultural awakening where they realize I'm black or I'm white or I'm Latinx, right? And they what does that mean for my position in the world and the way I walk down my street and the way I shop at Walmart, you know, and helping people navigate that stuff is part of the therapeutic process, you know? Um, but me telling you which words you can't say or can say 
it's not fun at all. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, it's just not. I'm like, I don't want to do that, man. I'm going through some stuff too. Like, <laughs> right. Well, and I feel like that's our responsibility to, it's not just a matter of knowing, okay, what words do you say or not say? Every word that you really shouldn't say, there's a reason behind it. Yeah. And so I feel like we have a responsibility to educate ourselves on, okay, what's the history of that word? Mm-hmm. What's the legacy of that word? What are the words that have been used to be abusive or oppressive to uh, anyone, either because of their race, gender, uh, sexuality, whatever? Um, And how do we, you know, how do we learn that, learn not just what the words are, but what the stories are that created, you know, the the connotation behind those words. And, yeah. and that's where I think we have a responsibility as we interact with other people to learn those aspects of the story. And you're right, you, you don't have to be the one to educate. There's already a lot of ways for us to educate for ourselves sure. out there. For sure, especially now. It's just yeah, like there's so much more resources out there. Yeah. yeah, across a variety of platforms Absolutely. and and uh, sort of ways that it's given to you. Like I remember for me, um, the, the, even several years ago when I was kind of first starting to think to think about some of these things, I remember the show Blackish was even like influential for me. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And and I thought some of the things they did in that show, I thought were really were really smart and well done. Just about how they presented some of the things in yeah. in a sitcom format that that probably makes it a little um, it goes down a little easier, perhaps, yeah, sure. <laughs> if you can present it in a sitcom. Sure. Um, and even like I mentioned, Key and Peele sketches, like even those, I think they they were helpful for a lot of people of just anything mm-hmm. that can cause you to kind of take a step back and examine something from a different perspective yeah. is is helpful, I think, and can then maybe open the door to some some harder conversations, Absolutely. some different different perspectives that that you might not be have been open to previously and and deeper change. I mean, that's the whole balance, right? Is how do you, how do you facilitate someone's awareness without triggering their insecurities? That's the Mm. whole balance in a conversation about these things, about political, religious, say say that, say that again. How do you, how how do you, how do you facilitate people's awareness without triggering their insecurities? You know, because mm-hmm. the minute you trigger somebody's insecurity, they'll get defensive or they'll get they're hurt and you can't get in, you know. So it's like a constant. And that's part of training counselors to be therapeutically present, because all we do in therapy is talk about people's insecurities. You know, sometimes you talk about some mm-hmm. fun stuff, but for the most part, you're talking about things that people are insecure about to some extent. And so how do you have those conversations in a way that's safe? enough for that person to slowly dive deeper into those things you know that's uh that's the name of the game if you can figure that out if you can work that muscle then man your relationships are that much stronger because of it that's that's helpful stuff good so we'll uh we we could keep talking about this all day, okay. but we'll uh, we'll press pause there at least okay, <laughs> okay. I'll, uh, i'd be curious to know what other people might might other thoughts that people might have or ideas or questions that this may bring up from, for some of our listeners, but Jude, I appreciate you jumping on with us today and and taking some time to think about this. And, and I certainly think 
there, there are obviously connections here that all of us can be aware of as we strive to, to engage each other, be aware of, of our own values, thoughts, how we came to those things, explore those as we try to be, be present with, with each other. So appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thank you guys. Thanks for the questions. Thanks for, you know, opening this space for this dialogue. Cause it's so important. It's important to me, but I feel like it's also important to our community that we're able to facilitate these discussions, man. So I appreciate you guys. Yeah, I absolutely appreciate you and, and, and the work that you and Jason and others do to, to invest in people through the, through the venue of, or forum of counseling, I do think is, is valuable and helpful to, to the community, to individuals and, and to families. So I appreciate all the work that y'all do. All right. So we, uh, we typically close these things in prayer. And so Jason, you want to, you want to end us in prayer for this morning? Sure. I'd be glad to. Our uh, wonderful father, we, uh, we approach you this morning, um, a, a species that can be very selfish, that can be very insecure, and that can be very fearful uh, and fearful of the wrong things. Uh, Lord, I ask for forgiveness and I pray for the humility that as we encounter our fellow humans that we may um, engage with them with compassion and with the knowledge that your spirit resides in them as it does in us. Uh, Give us the strength to be able to confront our own um, prejudices and our own um, uh, struggles with others, uh, with respect and with humility and with a desire to learn and grow closer to you through the varied experiences and dynamics of other people. Uh, We thank you for the way that you uh, guide us and teach us. And Lord, those guidances and, te- and, and lessons are very often difficult and sometimes even painful. But Lord, I pray that you will um, help us to, that, that you will help us to grow through that, um, that we won't see that struggle and that pain as indicative of, uh, of something that is bad but that is indicative of our own growth. Um, It's challenging and it's scary, uh, but with you by our side and with you as our guide, um, we can make it through and be stronger and be uh, more whole and have a fuller life in you uh, with our fellow human. Thank you so much for your son and for the example that he provided to us in these matters. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.